Amen. Tell you what, I appreciate those songs, good songs this morning. Uh, we don't say it often enough, and I, I'm pretty sure you feel the same as I do. I, I love our worship team. I, I, I appreciate them. Amen. All these young people, especially our instrumentalists, all our young instrumentalists. <laughs> I'm just thankful. That's a great ministry. Thank you for putting your heart into that. Matthew chapter 23. Would you join me over there? Matthew 23. Tell you what. Uh, it's been three weeks uh, since we've preached. And I, I, I remember the days where you preach like every three months and all that. Like, bless our hearts, like Mike and Brandon have to do. And uh, it's been three weeks and I'm, I'm kind of nervous. I think I might have forgot how to preach. <laughs> just been three weeks. Like we'll see. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I tell you one thing. I, I got out of my rhythm. Uh, I'm, I'm, I apologize if online. I don't know that you did. But if you had to listen to me sing that first song, that popping noise might have been me. I forgot to turn this off. And so I don't think I was singing with them in here. I hope those at home weren't having to listen to me because I do my own little thing. I do my own little rhythms, and I, I slide in and out of medley to an attempt at harmony. I just go back and forth, high, low. I do my own thing. So if you had to be subjected to that, I apologize. Hopefully not. All right, Matthew 23. Uh, it's been three weeks, so I need to do, I've thought through how much of this review do I need to do. Are we ready? Everybody ready? All right. It's the Passion Week. It's Passover time, early March, probably. From the time that we're looking at, he's teaching in the temple. It's what we're calling the third week. There's been the triumphal entry on day one. Day two, he cleansed the temple of the money changers and those that were selling animal sacrifices for far too much money. He ran them out of the temple. Day three, he's been teaching. And if you guys have been with us, you know that for two and a half chapters, we've been on the same day. And this is, we're not done. We won't finish today even uh, and this is a long section. This is the Lord's, what we're covering right now, is the last things that Jesus said on earth publicly in a teaching environment. It's kind of his last words to the public. Uh, and so this is what we've been delving into. It's been a long day of teaching on this third day in the temple, and it's been a lot of confrontation. His enemies have been trying to trap him with questions trying to entangle him in his words to get him in trouble with the Roman government or make him look foolish. They failed every time. I'm not going to revisit all of those. Guys, they are so thoroughly defeated in his answers. His wisdom far outweighs their. They've come up with their best trap questions. Jesus answers it in such a way that they now have nothing left to say to him publicly. They're like, we're not going to even ask anything else. They're not going to publicly respond. They have a backup plan that we know what the plan was. They're going to put him to death. But they're not going to jump into the arena of debate with Jesus anymore. Their defeat was so thorough that all that Jesus says in chapter 23 of this fiery denunciation and pronouncements of judgments against his enemies, they just have to take it, and they will not offer anything back. Now, like I said, it's been three weeks since we were in chapter 23. We started four weeks ago, so I'm going to, real quick, here's the review. 
Four weeks ago, there's a large audience apparently that are listening to Jesus teach. The confrontation between the back and forth has ended. Jesus takes the occasion to tell the crowd and his followers that the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the teachers of the law and the ones who've vowed to give their life to living up to Moses' law and all the traditions of the elders, that's the Pharisees, Jesus is telling his followers and the crowds that have come to check Jesus out, in essence, I'm summarizing, you want to know about the Pharisees and the scribes? Listen, they are your teachers. They're the teachers you have. They've just taken that spot. They've presumed that. They've seated themselves on the seat of Moses. And here's what he says. When they are teaching you about Moses and what the Bible says, you need to do what they say. But here's what you need to know about them. They're hypocrites. They don't do what they say. They're loveless. They are very willing to lay not only the law on you, but many, many more burdensome rules and regulations that are merely man-made. They'll lay those on you in a loveless way, and they're glory seekers. They just want to be seen. When they do good things, you can know this because Jesus knows their heart. They're doing it to be seen. That's what he says about them. But Jesus is not just like slandering and talking behind their back. Oh, no, they're right there. And then now he turns his attention and talks directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he does so starting in verse 13 down to verse 36 in what, we're going to, what we have called seven woes. If you look at it, there are seven woes. Do you remember what a woe is? A woe is where a person, it, again, people in the Bible, like, woe is me. I'm in suffering. I'm in anguish. The, Jesus is using this word of there is sorrow. Again, suffering, anguish. He's using it as a form of judgment. Sorrow, anguish, suffering is coming your way, scribes and Pharisees, and going to give them seven woes as to why this is going to happen. Now, so today's message is part two. Here's the last part of the review. We have covered four woes. Three weeks ago, we looked at four woes. Verse 13, verse 15, and then verse 16 and following, and then 23 and 24. I took those four pronouncements of suffering, sorrow, judgment to come, and I grouped them into three thoughts because the first two I felt like kind of went together. Here's the review of those three thoughts. Here's what Jesus says to them. Judgment, sorrow, suffering, anguish is coming your way for three reasons. Number one, your teaching, he tells them, leads people to hell. Remember that? Your teaching, here's what he's saying. You're on your way to hell. Hey, folks over here, I'm sorry. I'm just doing my imaginary. I'm not saying, you're, okay. In my mind, the Pharisees are over here, right? So, sorry, it's not personal. <laughs> Jesus tells them, you're on your way to hell. When other people come to you to get the teaching of how to have a relationship with God, your teaching leads them to hell. And along with that, when someone recognizes truth in Jesus and they want to go learn from Jesus and start following him, you cut them off, intimidate them, threaten to kick them out of the synagogue. You stop people from actually getting into heaven. You're on your way to hell. You're leading people to hell, and you're keeping people from getting to heaven. That was the first charge. Second woe, or The third woe that I used as the second point was this. They lacked discernment and authority. They lacked spiritual discernment and authority. Here was the thought. 
They actually thought they had the ability and the authority to tell people that they can break the ninth commandment. You can lie if you need to, but it won't really be a lie. If you swear, you promise and you take an oath and you swear by the temple, or if you swear by the altar, you don't really have to keep those swears and oaths and promises. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, and if you swear by the gift, the animal, the dead animal on the altar, then you have to keep your promise. So they had these man-made rules. They've made it okay. They've played fast and free and loose with the truth, which they had no authority to do. And if I won't revisit it, but when you think about their reasoning, they have the gold of the temple as more valuable than the whole temple. And they have the gift, the, the dead animals on the altar, more valuable than the altar that sanctifies the gift on the altar. They were so twisted, they, couldn't, they had no spiritual discernment. Blind guides. Why are you guiding people spiritually when you are spiritually blind? That's Jesus' charge. And then the fourth woe, which was our third thought two, uh, three weeks ago, was this one. They majored on the minors, and they minored on the major. Hey, they're really good about tithing their mint leaves and the little seeds of their herbs, but they neglected the weightier things of the law. So they emphasized the lighter things and neglected the weightier things of the law. And so those four woes and three thoughts now leads us to the last three woes this morning. I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm going to group verse 25, that woe, and verse 27, those two, the fifth and sixth. I'm going to group them into one thought, and then we'll do the seventh woe in verse 29 as the second thought this morning. So today's message has two primary thoughts. We're ready? Here we go. All right. Verse 25, with that as the background, the scene still continues. Christ is talking directly to them. Verse 25. Woe, anguish, sorrow, suffering, judgment to you, scribes, teachers of the law, and Pharisees, you who have supposedly vowed your life to fulfilling the law of Moses and keeping the traditions of the elders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're going to see the word hypocrites three times. It should be crystal clear the hypocrisy that Jesus points to. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Here's why. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You see the hypocrisy? You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full, the cup and the plate, are full of greed and self-indulgence. You already see Jesus is using figurative language. The cup and the plate represents the person. They're really good at cleaning the outside of themselves, but neglecting the inside. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. Hear it again. First, grace for you, hear this. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. There's a lot there. And there's a main point, but I hope you're already catching the secondary points that are there because we don't want to get out of balance in what the verse says. Let me read the last part again. Here's his command. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. I'm going to group that woe with the next one. I think they have the same similar theme. Verse 27. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? Why is he saying this? For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So, so did you catch what he says? You're like whitewashed tombs, full of dead people's bones, beautiful on the outside. Verse 28, so you also appear, right outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You look great. They probably don't know the difference. Christ is saying, I see your heart. Within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then today's second thought, the last woe of the seven is verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, here's why, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And we're probably thinking, what's wrong with that? Is this really, really bad? No, no, no. Verse, the problem's not verse 29. He says, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, here's what Israel's leaders were saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You hear it like Jesus saying, you are such hypocrites. You're all about the Old Testament prophets and the righteous who were persecuted and, and honoring them. But you're doing the same thing. Verse 30. 31. Thus you witness against yourselves. You witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. In verse 32, transitions to next week's passage. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. What Jesus is saying is, go ahead, finish what they've started, take it to the next level. You're going to fill up the measure of the wrath of God that is coming. Let's notice two things this morning. The first and second, well, we're going to put them together. First four verses of our passage. This one's pretty clear, right? Why are they called hypocrites? Why is woe and judgment coming upon the scribes and Pharisees? Number one, because their religion was merely external. Their religion was, catch the word, merely external. Religion, merely external. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and, and self-indulgence. Hey, I want you to use your imagination for a second, okay? You're at a restaurant. You've ordered a drink. I don't know if you're drinking tea or coffee. It doesn't matter, whatever it is. They bring your drink, and without looking, you take a, a sip out of the cup, and, man, it's got some nasty twang. <laughs> and you look at it, and there's, like, this thick film on the top of it. And you're like, I don't know what in the world. Hey, can I get something different here? Look at this. Oh, okay, yep, sorry about that. And they go, and they bring out another cup. And, again, you're not paying attention, so they pour your coffee in there. And just as they're walking away, all of a sudden, you see something floating. And they're like, whoa, whoa, what, in the, what is this? And they look, and they're like, oh, it looks like a piece of corn to me. Yeah, how does this get in my cup? This is my second cup here. How does this get in there? Well, my best guess would be that, that fellow right over there, he had the corn chowder for his appetizer about 30, 40 minutes ago, and that's his cup. And you're like, what in the, what in the world? 
How does this happen? And you have a view to the kitchen, and you see them just literally just clean. Here comes a cup. They clean the outside of the cups. Here's all the silverware, and they take the business end of the fork, and they just kind of wipe off the handle and roll it back up in a napkin and bring it out. And you're like, are you ever going back to that restaurant again? Never. Never. This does not work. Verse 25. What's Jesus' problem with the Pharisees? It's the same that a lot of people are going to find when they stand before the Lord. They're listening. They're very, very religious. This may be you. Jesus says you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Write this thought down. False religions often, I'm not putting all false religions in this category, but some that I've been exposed to and some that I've studied, many of them fall in this category. False religions often focus, I mean focus on our externals. They focus on our externals. That's not true religion. True religion does not focus on our externals. You say, what does it focus on? True religion focuses, catch this word, primarily on God. True religion focuses primarily on God and what he thinks of us internally. That's the primary focus of true religion. False religions often focus on the externals of the person, and they're really worried about what everyone else thinks of them. That's their consuming thought. Jesus says, Woe, scribes and Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. I'm about to weave a thought. This will be the first time I've hinted at it and how, how I read the passage. Excuse me. I felt that coming on this morning. Just not sick, and it'll go away in a second. Lord willing, I apologize. All right. We're good. I'm going to weave a thought that I've already hinted at in how I read the text. I want you to get it. You ready? Don't hear what Jesus says in verse 25 and 26 and think, well, Jesus doesn't care about the outside of the cup. Jesus doesn't care about our externals. Guys, what you need to do, and some of you are going to start in January and going to read your Bible and you have a Bible plan. When you get to that section, notice how many chapters are given to the temple, its order, the way it is built, the dress code, the procedures. Everything had to be just right. My point is God really does care about form and procedure and order of things. He cares about the externals. But the point Jesus is making here is that God cares more about our internal than our external. Don't hear God doesn't care about our externals. Jeff, man, you need to really lay in. I know some people, and they're all about the externals. Man, they just, they just go to seed on that, and they just judge everybody. Oh, well, that may be true, and that's the point of this passage. But don't just assume we don't need to worry about our externals as if, hey, it doesn't matter. Oh, it does matter. I've been kind of watching Chip Ingram a lot lately on these Wednesday nights, and if I were him, I'm pretty sure he'd probably have you get your pencil out, circle the word in verse 26. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate. That the outside also may be clean. God cares about our externals. He cares more about our internals. Look again at verse 25. uh, 25. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Most of us now, when we wash our cars, we do the drive-through thing, right? Or we get someone else to do it. Do y'all remember back when you actually washed your own car? Where do you start When you're washing your car, where do you start? You better start at the top. 
If you go clean all the bottom, the bottom looks good. Now let's go get the top. All that grime on the top is just going to just ooze right down over and undo what you did. You start at the top and work your way down, section by section, top, then the middle, then down the bottom. Why? That's the proper order. What Jesus is saying here this morning, there's our internals and there's our externals. Both are important, but what his point is, there is rank and there's order. Watch. There's rank and there's order. Internal outranks the external, and the internal is dealt with first. This is pretty practical. If you're the dishwasher at your house, wash the inside of the cup first, because if you wash the outside, get it nice and clean, then you wash the inside as you go it's going to splatter over, and then as you wrench, it's going to wash out over. All the, the inside dirt's going to come on the outside. You're going to clean the outside again anyway, so it makes sense. Start with the inside first, get it clean, then clean the outside. This is real simple what Christ is saying. I've been part of, and I've been tempted myself, and remember, there's rank and order. Both are important, because you may miss what I'm about to say. Have you ever been part of a church culture that when you win a new convert to Christ, there's this tendency to start focusing, focusing as the priority on the person's externals? Have you ever seen that? Get a brand new Christian, and what do we got to work on? We want to talk to you about these clothes you've been wearing. You don't need to be wearing that material and that pattern and that color and that cut anymore. You really, we're going to do away with these, and you need to really... Dress like us, because we're the standard. And we're going to start getting rid of some of those words that you've been using. You need to cut that out. And you really need to, you're going to have to stop smoking those cigarettes. Because we've got to start working on the And they get, walk away with the idea, to be a good Christian, the foremost thing I have to do is stop smoking cigarettes and change my clothes and get my hair cut and stop using those bad words. Does God care about those things? He does. Write this thought. The more a person's heart is in tune with God, their heart, the more their heart is in tune with God, the more their outer life will reflect God's character. They don't need, listen, they've been lost their whole life. And yeah, we all have our areas that we struggle with sin. None of us are perfect. So we don't need to go start beating them over the head and make them look like we want us, like we all look in our gathering you know what I think sometimes at the heart of it? Boy, I wasn't planning on saying this. I hope I don't get in trouble. I think it's pride. We don't want you embarrassing us. And you need to start changing your externals to match all of our externals. You make us look bad. And we're glad you got saved. What they really need is to learn what happened at salvation, what God says about them, what God is offering them, and the power to live the Christian life. And now he has a plan for their life. As that starts getting in place more and more, then the outside will start coming into shape. But we want to put the outside first. We're, we do the same thing sometimes. We've got to be careful. The inside and the outside matter but the inside matters more, and the inside must be addressed first. Again, I want to emphasize the word first clean. First implies there's a second. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now, verse 27, quickly. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. 
but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you, scribes and Pharisees, you also appear, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You're like tombs? Jesus could have said, you know what you're like? You're like tombs. You're full of deadness and corruption. And that would have been accurate. But Jesus says, here's the bigger problem. You're like whitewashed tombs. Now, guys, this was a very timely word usage. Again, it's early April. Here's the situation. I didn't know this. I had to learn. What is whitewash? Whitewash is like lime and water and other ingredients that basically was the paint of their day. It was like plaster, and you could make it thicker or thinner, depending how much you diluted it down. But this was the paint, and it would have given this white appearance. And literally, he's talking about whitewashed tombs. So here's the timeliness of this. This is what I didn't know. I'd never put it together. As these people were coming to the Passover, they would have seen freshly painted, freshly whitewashed buildings but also whitewashed tombs. It was this idea, it was like mandatory to each, I'm assuming every February or March, you would go out and whitewash the tombs. Why? Because if Jews touch a dead body or anything that is connected to a dead body, they are ceremonially defiled for a certain number of days. And so if Jews are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and celebration, and they get defiled by unknowingly coming in contact with a grave, I didn't even know. Whoa, you're not going to be able to sacrifice. You're not going to be able to partake of the Passover meal. Well, what day is it? What? Uh, no, they should have marked this. Oh, so here's what they did. They whitewashed the tombs. They made it really, really clear so that everyone knows, stay off of that area. So here's the key. At this time period, as people are approaching Jerusalem, all of its whitewashed buildings as a whole, but particularly add all the tombs. More and more as you're getting close to this populated city, it had a real gleaming, white, beautiful appearance. It almost makes me think of that Greek island, the Mykonos, right? They have the white buildings and the blue tops, and it's just, it just grabs your attention. It just shines in the sun. That's what the Lord's saying. Hey, Pharisees, you know what you're like? You're like whitewashed, beautiful, attractive, and if somebody doesn't know, now what is this? This is so beautiful, the way this is all. Yeah, those are tombs. What? Oh, those are tombs, graves. I had these notes in my, I had these thoughts in my notes typed out two weeks ago, not knowing the timeliness of them. But they're still true. Jesus says, Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. When our loved ones die... And Jesus is not saying it's wrong to whitewash the tombs. He's saying they are like whitewashed tombs. You just need to remember what it actually is. Because the whitewash can make it deceptive of what's actually inside. So here's what happens, and many of you have lived this. This was new for us. We spent four hours at the funeral home um, two weeks ago tomorrow uh, just going through it. First time I've been on the other end of that, never been on the family side of that and those those decisions that had to be made. But when our loved one dies, here's what we do. We want to honor them, and that's very normal. And how do we honor them? We want to get the most beautiful casket that we can afford. We want to get the most beautiful vault we can afford. We want to get the best uh, headstone or gravestone or, if you, if you like, the upright kind that are above the ground, tombstone. We want to get the absolute best that we can get. And, guys, 
We want to put like their best outfit on them, be it a dress for her. Again, this is probably less these days, but for most of my life, it was just like, man, you throw the best suit and tie that they have on this person. If you didn't know what it was and you just drove around the county, truly, if you didn't know what it was, you would come to the conclusion that, man, there's golf courses and there's some people who really care about their, their yard. But, man, these, just, these areas over here, this is like some of the most beautiful area in all of the county. Look how manicured the grass is. And look at all the symmetry. And look at all those stones. And it's just got literally hundreds of bouquets of flowers. This is like the most beautiful. What is that over there? Oh, that's full of dead bodies. All of this is an attempt to pretty up death. That's all it is. Someone dies, again, someone comes in, they start working on the body, they cut the hair, they wash the hair, they style the hair of what? A dead person. They're putting this dress or this suit and tie, makeup and lipstick on what? A dead person. This is what Jesus is saying. You Pharisees, you have a lot of good things on the outside, but it's nothing more than putting a suit and tie and makeup on a dead corpse. That is your religion. Your religion is dead, it is vain, it is empty. There's nothing to it. You see in your notes this thought, they were far more concerned, the Pharisees, the externals, they're far more concerned with their reputation than with their reality. There's the reputation of a person and there's the reality of a person. And guys, here's, our, here's one, of our goal. one of our goals in life is to have our reputation match our reality. Theirs didn't. Their reputation was one thing. The reality was very, very different. I want you to focus for just a moment, verse 25 and verse 28. I'm sorry, 25 and 20. Yes, 25 and 28. Jesus, knowing the truth about them, looks past all the external religious activity, and he sees underneath the surface of the Pharisees, and he recognizes beneath the surface, they don't see it, but I do, There's this unseen cesspool that is seething with corruption and filth. Jesus uses four words. Look at the end of verse 25. But inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Write this thought. Verse 25 means that greed, the New American Standard doesn't translate it with the word greed, though this is accurate. This is a good word. Catch it. It actually uses the word robbery. Jesus says inside, it's full of robbery and self-indulgence. What does this mean? Here's the thought. Verse 25 is saying that the Pharisees and scribes used their religious position as spiritual leaders, religious leaders, to extort money from other people so that they could live self-indulgent lives privately. So they're taking from other people, putting the guilt trip on. Hey, they're very generous, man. They're tithing even down to the, down to the seeds and down to the leaves. They must be really, really great godly people. Oh, no, that is nothing for them to do that because they're skimming off from everyone else, using their platform to rob money so that privately they live this self-indulgent lifestyle. The other thing Jesus sees when he looks beneath the surface of the scribes and Pharisees, verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, within, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, what does that mean? What is verse 28? Hypocrisy. And lawlessness. I'm going to give you my take. I wouldn't die for this thought, but I think here's what he's saying. Pharisees and scribes, you look really, really great. But what they don't understand is just below the surface, inside the real you is full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's what he's saying. Your inner dialogue. We all have that. 
I think we all do. I do. I, I, have, a, I have a running dialogue in my head. I hear my voice. Do you guys do that? It's me talking in my dialect. That's, it's me. I'm reasoning my thoughts out. I think things. I, I hear me talk a lot. I, I, I hear me talk more, and sometimes I talk to me. And we have, the, and maybe it's a dialogue. I think it's a dialogue. Sometimes it's just a monologue, but we have this inner dialogue. What Jesus is saying is the scribes and the Pharisees' inner dialogue with themselves is not holy. Here's the idea. It is not at all what people think. People look at them and think, they must be really godly. I wonder what they think about as they go through life. What Jesus is saying is it is not at all what you think it would be. Why? Because it's filled with lawlessness. Here's what it means. Their dialogue is not what you think it would be inside because Every ungodly thought and desire that comes into their mind is like welcomed. It's what, by the way, all of us have ungodly thoughts. All of us have ungodly desires. We all have them. The thing with the scribes and the Pharisees is that these thoughts and desires are made welcome and they're unrestrained, they're unhindered. It, literally inside, it's like lawlessness. Anything goes. It's a free-for-all inside their mind. Now, outwardly, you can't tell. They're sitting here talking with you but inwardly, there's a whole other line of thought that has taken place. Does that describe anyone here? Does that describe you? Are you the kind of person that's like, well, I'm, I'm one thing on the outside, but man, on the inside, I'm thinking a totally different thought. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were like, and they were not fooling Christ. They were dead, empty, lifeless. All right, guys, so I'm going to finish this first point, and the second point is shorter, obviously. But I want to finish this by making something really, really clear, super plain. You ready? Got your pens ready? What does Jesus mean when he says the outside of the cup? You clean the outside of the cup. So I want you to write four thoughts. You can add others to it if you want, but these were the four that came to me. The outside of the cup is what you would see if you followed me around for a week, right? If you just followed Jeff Bartlett around for a week, you would see the outside of the cup. And that would represent what? The following things. It represents our audible words. You follow me for a week, you're going to hear my audible words. It represents our visible actions. Our visible actions. It represents our expressions. And it represents our physical appearance. That goes back to what we are talking about a while ago. Hair and clothes and makeup and the whole way that you present yourself. So here's the outside of the cup. Outside of the cup. Our audible words, the ones that are actually spoken, people can hear. Our visible actions, our expressions, and our physical appearance. Quick question, does God care about those four things? Absolutely. He cares about your expression. He cares about your physical appearance. He cares about the words that you actually speak. And he cares about the actions that you make. So if that's the outside of the cup, what's the inside? That phrase when Jesus talks is implying the inside. Clean the inside of the cup. What is that? Well, the inside of the cup represents these things. Our true thoughts, our true thought, our true attitude, the real attitude, not the one you're projecting, the real attitude, your real feelings on the matter. Oh, yeah, I think it's great. Hey, where are we going to go eat? Doesn't matter to me. Oh, okay, well, let's go over here. Ugh. Oh, so it does matter to you. That's fine. The inner represents our real thoughts, our real attitude, our real feelings, our real motives. These are not getting by God, guys. God knows our real motives, our real desires, our real appetites. 
You have the outside of the cup, spoken words, expressions, appearance, actions, inside of the cup, thoughts, motives, feelings, desires, appetites, those things. Attitude. What is your real attitude? I want you to listen just for a moment. Ready? Grace View, we are absolutely right to give a lot of attention to external sins like blasphemy. Listen, I don't want to hear you blaspheme the name of the Lord. Don't blaspheme the name of the Lord. We need to give attention and concern about slander and lying. Don't lie. Don't slander. Don't gossip. Isn't it easy? So easy just to slide into gossip. Don't gossip. Don't be a person with rage. Don't be a violent person. Don't commit murder. We need to be concerned that we're not committing fornication and adultery. We need to be concerned that we're not committing theft and stealing. These matter. These are very important. But what you need to realize, if you ever struggle with those things, it's because there's a bigger problem. There's a base problem. Those outer things are symptoms. They're the response. They're the results of other things that are going on the inside. If we would give first priority in time and the first rank attention to what's going on the inside. You say, Jeff, why is there blasphemy and lying and slander and gossip and rage and violence and murder and adultery and fornication and stealing among even Christians? It's because on the inside, there's no love for God. Why are they blaspheming the Lord? There's either ignorance or there's no love for God or there's no love for other people. That's why these things are happening. What's going on on the inside? There's anger. There's hatred. There's lust. There's discontent, unforgiveness, coveting, greed, pride. The outside is very important, but the inside is even more important. And it's first and foremost. I want to share a thought. I wrote this well after the fact of going over this multiple times. And so I'm going to offer it. I don't know that I'm going to, I would die for this. I'm going to throw it out to you because here's the impression that I'm getting from our text. Got to emphasize this. Neither person I'm about to describe is the ideal. So if you're one of these and if you're the, what I think is the better position, don't think, oh, well, that's me. It's good. I'll just camp out there. Neither one of these is the ideal. Here it goes. I believe from our text, the impression Jesus gives is that God has more patience with a person who, let's be honest, has some rough edges on the outside. And they have some things in their life that just isn't right. It needs cleaned up in their external life. But on the inside, what you don't see is there is genuine love for God. Genuine love for other people. And there is a true humility that causes them to be teachable. And they are actually growing in the faith. That's not the ideal to stay there where they have these problems. What I'm contending is Jesus is saying is that person actually receives more patience from God than the other person who appears to have it all together and to be holy and righteous externally, but internally there is no love for God, no love for other people, and they have a lot of self-righteous pride and judgment. I believe God has much more patience for the first person than he does the second. That's what Christ is trying to tell us. So yes, Jeff, 
Do you know any people? So here I go again. I'm, I'm, I know I'm going back and forth. I'm in a cycle because I don't want us to get too far out of bounds. I know my group here. I know our group and I know our history. And we'll very quickly read this text, and rightly so. I don't need to be one of those that always emphasizes the outside. And there are some that overemphasize the externals. But there are also some who neglect, and they really need to give more attention to the externals. Because God cares about the external. Did you hear me? He cares more about the inside, but he does care about the outside. When the inside is as it should be, it will show up on the outside. So I can't leave this point without first giving you these four thoughts. This is the last point on the first point. Jesus says, clean the inside of the cup. Hey, a lot of people appear righteous on the outside. God's not going to be fooled. Clean the inside of the cup. Write these down quickly. How do we clean the inside of the cup? Number one. You ready? Because this matters. I'm going to go through this faster than I should. This is really about as important as any part of the, the whole text today, the whole message. How do we clean the inside of the cup? If I am having this problem with anger and hatred and lust and discontent and unforgiveness and coveting greed and pride and all these other things that's leading to these other external sins, how do I clean the inside of the cup? Number one, you have to start here. You will make no progress. This is the first and fundamental, the most important thing. Number one, become a new creation by trusting Jesus as your Savior. When you put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross, and that alone to save you, at that moment, you are literally made a brand new person where there was deadness and no spiritual life. Now there is spiritual life. You are a new person. That's the key focal thing. You say, Jeff, I'm already there. I am a Christian, but I'm still struggling with some of these things. Number two, how do we clean the inside of the cup? Confess specific, that's a key word, confess specific sins to God in private times of prayer. I know this is basic, but guys, if, you'll, if we'll do the fundamentals, we will be cleaning the inside of the cup. Are you a Christian? Number two, do you regularly confess your sins? Remember 1 John. If, this is what God's Word says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we're after. I need to clean the inside of the cup. Constantly, daily, take the trash out. When's the last time you've confessed very specific sins? God, I am agreeing with you. It isn't even this, Lord, would you please forgive me of that? No, it's, Lord, I'm acknowledging you're right. You've convicted me of this. I'm confessing and repenting of this sin, and I am receiving your forgiveness of that sin and your cleansing. That's super important. Number three, again, springing from our Wednesday night study, renew your mind. So constantly confess sin. But also, that's not enough. You're like, okay, Jeff, I think I got it. I sin and then confess. Sin and confess, sin and confess. Sounds like a pretty good plan. No, stop sinning. When you do sin, confess. How? Renew your mind by daily. Chip gave us five things. I'm stealing them, okay? Hearing the Word of God, reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, and meditating on the Word of God. Guys, that is key. I found I could really connect with what Chip was saying, how he was struggling with a certain sin, but when he started implementing these things, particularly the memorizing and the meditating, 
All of a sudden, he found him in a situation where he normally committed that same sin as he had before. And then he walks away from that situation realizing, I didn't commit the sin internally. I didn't do it. And he gave the credit to what God was doing inside of him, renewing his mind by studying, reading, hearing, memorizing, meditating on the Word of God. And then lastly, in the moment of temptation, let me go back over here. Let's say your, your, your struggle is, Jeff, I struggle with anger. Jeff, I'm struggling with hatred. Jeff, I'm struggling with, with unforgiveness. I, just, I cannot forgive this person. I cannot forgive them. I'm struggling with coveting. I am so discontent. I'm so covetous. I want what other people have. If you're struggling with that, do this fourth thing. Rely on God's Holy Spirit to give you victory over that sin in the moment. Confess it, but don't be com- content just to continue to commit the same sin over and over. Holy Spirit, you've identified it. You've promised victory in my life. According to Romans 6, I am right now relying on you to give me victory over that particular sin that you have named. So what do you spend the most time on? Your externals or your internals? Use today as a test. How much time do you spend getting ready in the shower, eating breakfast, Brushing your teeth, fixing your hair, ironing your clothes, putting your clothes on. I'm for all those things, by the way. I'm for that. Did you spend more time doing that than you spent getting your soul, spirit, mind, and heart prepared? Jesus says one is more important. The internal outranks and comes first before the externals, but he cares about the externals. And then number two starts in verse 29. Here's our thought. Wise woe and judgment, anguish, suffering, sorrow coming to the scribes and Pharisees. Number two this morning. Really the fifth thought and the seventh woe is because, number two, they recognize the sins of others. They recognize the sins of others. Now that's a very incomplete note. Do y'all, un- y'all understand what's implied there? What's the problem? They recognize sin in others, so do we. The problem is they recognized sin in others but did not recognize sin in themselves. That's the problem. Look at verse 29. What do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? So here's the problem. Focus. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Jesus says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Go ahead. Fill up the measure of what... What they have done. I want you to picture them. Scribes and Pharisees having a meeting. <laughs> Order of business. Mr. So-and-so has made a nomination that we recognize. Prophet so-and-so. And that we build a much bigger monument there outside of his tomb. And that we decorate it. And he's offered the first $10,000. I second that and I'll give this. Off they go. Man, this is great and it's nice. Jesus is not condemning them for honoring the prophets or the righteous. That's not the problem. Picture them giving their little tours. Now, up on the left, you'll see so-and-so, and he was a real man of God. And man, he, he was a prophet of God, but wicked king so-and-so and wicked queen so-and-so put them to death or harassed them and, and persecuted them throughout their life. Now, up just past that, we're going to, now don't get too close because you'll be defiled, but you'll see right over there, we've got in big letters, she was a woman of God. She loved the Lord, and she stood firm for the faith. They're giving these tours. They're talking about, man, we want to do this and that, and we're honoring the dead. 
Sounds great. Jesus' problem is that you're doing all of this in a contradictory fashion, hypocritical fashion, because you're doing the same things that your forefathers did to the prophets and the righteous before you. You're implying you would not have done it, but you're doing the exact same thing you already have. You will, even worse in the future. What's their decorating? What's all this monument building? It's an attempt to make up for the sins of their fathers. That's what it is. Here it is. Write this thought. The Pharisees and scribes have perfect vision, clear vision, 2020, to spot the sins in other people, but they couldn't spot the exact same sin in themselves. They knew their forefathers had done wrong. They have clear vision to spot sin in others, but couldn't identify the same sin in themselves. I know I've shared this over and over, and I apologize, but it fits, okay? I was probably five years old, six, and we were at the dinner table. We didn't eat at the dinner table a lot, but this night we did. And again, I apologize. I know I've used this before, but here's the point. I remember telling on my brother Russell because he had his eyes open during the prayer. Somebody's praying for supper, and Russell didn't have his eyes closed. And I felt that needed to be made known, and so I told on him. Now, what does that tell you? Think about a little little child. By telling on him, we can debate, do you have to have your eyes closed when you pray? No, it doesn't say that. But as a little child, I thought it was wrong. I really think this is so wrong, it needs to be pointed out. But I didn't notice the same exact sin in myself. Are we guilty of doing this in, in far more serious ways? What Jesus is saying is your speech. So let me get this straight. You think it's wrong that when God sends prophets to Israel, it's wrong for Israel's leaders to persecute them. Oh, absolutely. It's wrong to oppose them and to kill them. Absolutely. That is terrible. And we need to make up for it by building these monuments and tombs and and decorating them in a more elaborate way. We need to honor them because that was so terrible. What Jesus is saying is your own words are condemning you. What he's saying is you of all people should know not to do what they did because you've seen it, you've spotted it. Hey, we go again. It's like the third time this morning that I'm going to offer my thought on something that may not be 100% grounded in the Scripture, the truth. I'm going to give you my opinion, what I've kind of observed from a distance. I want you to picture someone. There's a lot of them. Not me, praise the Lord. God had mercy and grace. I grew up in a home of Christians. We did not have substance abuse in our house. Did not have that. We did not have drunkenness in our house. But there's a lot of people around the world and in America that are raised in houses where substance abuse and drunkenness and alcoholism dominates. I think that people who come out of that respond in one of two ways. Some, as they come out of that, they absolutely hate illegal drugs. They hate alcohol in any form. They, they avoid it with such conviction. They will even go through life as a volunteer 
doing ministry to help people that struggle with that or those who are living under those conditions or trying to get victory, having been reared in those conditions. And they just, I mean, they just hate that lifestyle. And so they oppose it with everything in them all their life. And that's their response to it. But as you know, as well as I do, there's a whole other group of people that grow up or reared in that environment and they end up repeating the exact same lifestyle. They just do the same thing. Grandparent was an alcoholic or an addict, and then the parent was an alcoholic or an addict, and now they are an alcoholic or an addict. Guys, I'm going to tell you, again, this, I'm getting in a, a, a gray line and subtle here. When I look at that person, because I was not reared in that and the difficulty that is associated with that, man, I want to give them a pass. And I'm just like, man, that's, I wasn't, I, I feel sorry for you, and, and man, I just, I understand, and I hate that that's happened to you, and you're now doing the same thing. I don't believe God is going to give them a pass. In fact, I think what the Lord would say, why are you in this lifestyle? Why are you being dominated by these things? Because it's what I grew up in. Your own words are condemning you. You saw the devastation and the ravaging effects of this. You saw the pain and the neglect and the ability to hold a job. You saw the without food. You saw the rage and the beatings. And now you're doing that. Do you think you're the exception? Your own words have condemned you. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. You look at them. You have 20-20 vision. You think you would do differently than they would do. You are proving you would do the exact same thing. Your own words are condemning you. You have the family trait, is what Christ is saying. You have the traits of your fathers that you think you're so much better than. Here are the Pharisees in the day of Christ looking back to the Old Testament, and they think, we are so clear-sighted that if we just lived back then, now unfortunately this was a godly person, that was a righteous person, but the Israel's leaders were so wicked and cruel that they did this again. But had we lived then, we would have stood with the righteous. We would have opposed those who were opposing God's people. We would have rallied the people to get behind the prophet of God. And we would have led a revival. Would you? What Jesus is saying is, no, you would not. You have a quote. And it's the last one on your handout this morning, I think, if I've not skipped anything. D.A. Carson writes the following. And here's the trouble. And I'm only going to put the first half of it up, okay? Or no, we won't put it up yet. I'm only going to give you the first half. Carson writes the following. While piously claiming to be different, they are already plotting ways to put an end to Jesus. You see it? That's the problem. This is literally what they're doing. They're already plotting to put an end. Did you catch the difference? Now, you have a big problem with your forefathers who persecuted and killed and shed the blood of the prophets in the Old Testament... But you're plotting to put an end to Jesus, who's greater than any Old Testament prophet, greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king. He's the very son of God, and you're planning on killing him, and you will carry out your plan within two and a half days. Now, to complete Carson's quote, and this takes us into verse 32, where it says, Jesus says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Carson writes, while piously claiming to be different, they are already plotting ways to put an end to Jesus. God can only tolerate so much sin. And then when the measure is full, which they're getting ready to fill, he must respond in wrath. In a lot of ways, that quote will now project us in the coming weeks into what has 
and even will happen to the nation of Israel. Much sorrow and anguish because their leaders led them into sorrow and anguish and suffering. And now we know why. They looked with contempt at their forefathers, but they're going to do something far worse than their forefathers ever did. Now your note's over, but I have just a few more minutes. I need to finish by us, because here's what is very tempting. Yeah. Those Pharisees, they're terrible. Well, Jesus really blistered them. Amen. Let's go home. What does this mean for us? Why did Jesus pronounce woe? Because their religion was merely external and because they could spot sin in other people. Now, you're going to have to hear everything that I'm about to say or you'll misquote me, and I hope I say it properly as I am intending. This is not meant to offend anyone on on one topic that I'm going to touch on. As I've looked back over the last year and a half, two years in our country, hard to believe it's been really a year since this was really, really happening heavily, what I'm about to talk about. We are now here at the end of 2021 in a time where a lot of people in America make an assumption. Y'all with me? They make an assumption. Boy, if I lived 200, 225 years ago in America, I would have taken a stand against slavery. I can tell you that. Slavery is a sin. It's a black mark on America. They better be glad I didn't live back then. I wouldn't have sided with all of those people. I would have stood against it. That's what a lot of people think. Maybe you would. Maybe you think, boy, if I lived then, I would. Maybe. Maybe not. Some did. Not many. Most didn't. Not at the beginning and in the middle. Took a long time. Too long. Sin was ravaging our country. Now people are looking back there saying, boy, if I lived then, they're looking back at the forefathers saying how bad. And it was. It was ugly. It was sin. And they think, boy, I wouldn't put up with such inhumane treatment of other human beings. Better be glad I didn't live back then. Maybe you would have stood against it. Maybe you wouldn't. I want to ask you a question. And all the people that think that way, who are so vehement against, like, nothing good ever happened to these people. Here's what I would ask. Why didn't they see it? Was it just greed? Was it they saw it, don't care? It's just greed. Could I propose to you that it became normal? It became normal to them. Generation. I'm not talking about the beginning. Yes, someone had to make a decision, and then that led to one thing and another. But all of a sudden, generation. I'm talking about little children. All they know. What's the old saying? It's it's the air they breathe. It's the air we breathe. Mom and daddy have slaves. Uncles and aunts have slaves. I have one that I can tell what to do. The people down at the city, downtown, out in the county, the state officials, the leaders. This is just normal. It's the air we breathe. Do you catch what's happening? It's normalized. But why didn't they see it? I'll give you a hint. Human nature often is blind to its own evil. We give ourselves a pass. We're hard on other people when we see their sin. We give ourselves a pass. It is only by God's grace that any of us ever see our sin in time. And when we see it in time, it is God's grace that helps us to see it as exceedingly sinful. Have you ever had that happen? Like, whoa, I'm in big trouble. 
Many of them didn't have it. Brutal sin was happening all around, but they're blind to it. They didn't have the insight to see it for what it really was. Again, the leaders are doing it. But now, here I'm going, here's my point. But now people are looking back with 2020 vision and see that as the evil that it was. But here's my problem. Before looking back there and sitting on your high mounted platform condemning, do you see the sins that are going on in America today? Because it's easy to look back there and, man, they are terrible and they're awful. Our country is filled with people who can see clearly 2020 vision there, but they don't see the sins in America today. You say, Jeff, we're talking about slavery. What sins are you talking about? I don't know, just two or three or 11. How about abortion? Do you know in my lifetime, apparently 62 million babies have been aborted? I'm going to sound, I'm going to probably get in trouble for this. If you, think so, if you think abortion is okay, I don't want to hear you talk about slavery because if you lived back then, you would, you would have done the same thing. You have no discernment. I don't want to hear it. Be quiet. These little babies are being torn without having the privilege of giving their voice. Their rights are being denied. So don't talk about that. That's true, but you need to apply it in abortion. Drunkenness. Our country has an epidemic of drunkenness. I'm talking about being drunk. We have an epidemic of drunkenness and addiction. Fornication is just the air we breathe. It's expected. It's the norm. But nobody sees it. What's wrong? Oh, those Christians see it. See, the Pharisees recognized the sins of their forefathers, had a big problem with it, but they're doing the same things. Adultery is rampant in our country. Homosexuality has just become the norm. You can get mad at me all you want. The Bible is clear. Homosexuality is sin. It's absolutely sin. Now catch, I didn't start with that one, and I'm not singling that one out. I put it in the same list with drunkenness, adultery, fornication, abortion, greed. Our country is greedy, pornography, gambling, Dishonoring authorities, that's an epidemic. It's, it's the cool thing to do to dishonor authorities. Stealing, you understand what's happening in stealing? Our local retail shops have to charge more money because they're losing literally millions of dollars because people are going in broad daylight by themselves grabbing merchandise knowing that workers can't stop them for fear of a lawsuit. It's an epidemic. Our country is just stealing things. And here's one more we may not have thought. Idleness has become the thing to do today. Just sit idly. You have an able body. could get a job, but you won't. That's sin. Well, I didn't get it. Thank you, Brother Archie. They've never been more normalized. But, boy, we can spot the sins of our forefathers. Yeah, that's what the Pharisees did. So I just want to ask you this morning as I close. Are you good at spotting the sins of past Americans? Be honest. Are you good at spotting the sins of your enemies? Can you name them? Can you name the sins of your parents? I know them. Pop, pop, I can tell you. Oh, yeah. My family? Oh, we've got problems. Pop, pop, pop. You can name them? Question. Answer really within yourself. Are you more likely to spot the sins of other people or yourself? 
That's a question we really need to contemplate. I know I sound like Mr. Mean Preacher right here at the end, but we really need to contemplate this. How is our inside? How's the inside of the cup? How's the outside of the cup? Do we spot the sins of our enemies and our country like I've just done? Do we spot the sins of our parents, our siblings, our spouse more than we spot our own sins? If you're sitting there saying, oh, yes, I'm much better at spotting my own sins. I know the point being made, Jeff. Well, let's put it to the test. Let's put it to the test. Don't say out loud, I really want you to say these in your mind. To really say these, name them in your mind. What are the sins that most easily tempt you? What are the sins that most easily tempt you? Oh, I've got a lot of them. Like what? Um, who are we talking about, me or my parents? I can, I can tell you my parents right now. I can tell you about America, Jeff. You're right. You're 100% right. America. Okay, what about you? What are the ones you are tempted? Here, let's go further. What are the sins you have most recently committed? Name them. What are the sins you have most recently confessed to God specifically? You're going to give an account for you. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. We're going to give an account for ourselves. So in a moment I'm going to pray, but I want to ask you first. How's the inside of your cup this morning? Let's start there. The inside. The most important part of you. What would God say? How are things with you this morning? What's going on in there? Are things right? Is your heart, your mind, your soul, your spirit, are you right now in this moment, to the best of your ability, are you what we would say earlier, in tune with God? Are you in tune with God? Or are you out of tune with God? Talking about the inside. Thoughts, attitudes, feelings, desires, motives, appetites. How's the inside of your cup this morning? Is there anything that you need to right now say, God, wow, you just put your finger on it. Oh, and, there, and there, there's that, that one too. And Lord, there's that one. Are you confessing and receiving forgiveness and repenting and turning? This is what we must do. We do not want to be like the Pharisees. Worrying more about our image and our reputation than our reality. God sees our reality. He is not fooled. He wants that cleaned. Let's leave clean this morning. Got to ask you while we're here, how's the outside of your cup? If you're able to say, Jeff, I love the Lord. I love people. I have some things. Okay, is there anything in your life that if the Lord Jesus were sitting there listening to the words you use, saw your expression, saw your visible actions, and the physical appearance that you're projecting on other people, would he be okay with it? Or would he say, hey, wait, wait, whoa. Yeah, there's a problem. That needs fixed. I still care about the externals. And then lastly, I would ask us this. Is there a sin that you've spotted in someone else that you have the exact same sin in some form. Man, that hurts. We can spot it in them, 
but we have a form of it in our own life. What do we need to do to cleanse our minds? Are we born again? Have we been made a new creation? Do you confess specific sins in private prayer? Do you spend time in the Word of God letting it renew your thinking, making you new, cleaning you on the inside, and then knowing you're still going to be tempted? And when you are, run to the Word of God and the Spirit of God for victory. Father, thank you for being our Father, for being so patient. Lord, I acknowledge you. You know all the things that your Holy Spirit just convicted us of and there's still things you are yet not even convicting us of because you're working on these things first Lord we'll spend our life I know we're going to spend our life you are going to be working on us making us more like Christ thank you for not ever giving up on us thank you for your patience your long suffering but also for your power thank you for your word thank you for the Holy Spirit that doesn't just convict but comforts and gives victory and power And so we, Lord, confess our sins. May we not sit high and mighty in judgment of others, even of our own past ancestors in our own country, and turn a blind eye to our own sin and the sins of our day. Lord, may we stand with righteousness, telling the truth. Help us tell the truth and live the truth in love, in the way that is most effective at bringing people to Christ, not driving them from Christ, but leading them in a winsome way. Father, would you be with us now? May we get up from these seats clean, confessed, repented, trusting. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.